have you guys ever had someone see something that you did and then just say to you, oh, we are not worthy, we are not worthy, you know, this kind of give you that false praise of you did something awesome. Um, maybe your mind went to Wayne's world. Uh, I know mine did. Uh, or maybe something just silly like, oh, yeah, I just got that kill spree in Halo, you know, back in the day. And, uh, or the half-court shot, you know. I know I'm playing to the millennials right there. <laughs> no, we, we praise the oddest things, you know, when you think about it. I mean, even... Uh, with some of the, the most powerful leaders that we've seen, we've, we've praised and adored. Um, like, for example, my, my mind went to Hitler. I mean, he was praised and adored by the German people. Absolutely. Because he brought to the people a new hope that Germ Germany would be strong again. They had been in this depressed state. They were no longer a powerful nation, but Hitler is bringing them up to be a powerful nation, and all the people were excited about it. Yet, under that guise of excitement, there was an evil agenda that eventually led to Germany to become a weaker nation than it was before. That was because it eventually was defeated in World War II, and the exposure of their evil acts of genocide were judged. Now, what I want us to do is lift up something that's more important. We're gonna, we're gonna focus on Jesus Christ. Obviously not Hitler. <laughs> uh, but I'm just pointing out that we do worship and praise the oddest things without even considering the deeper truth of why? And also thinking, how does this play out? What is, what is this scene that I'm praising and lifting up? How does it actually play out? So when it comes to Jesus, we either have a disdain response, one of rebellion, or an adoring response to him. And you know, Jesus expected that. He expected that there would be different responses to him. Now the question becomes, have you considered what is the root of your response to Jesus? See, if you're in that adoring response group, have you recently asked, why do you adore Jesus? Is it because of what you get from him? Or is it because you behold that he truly is worthy? So today, I want us to be challenged to behold the one who truly is worthy to behold and submit ourselves to Jesus, the Son of God. And so what we will read today is a proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed King. So let's read in Mark chapter 1 here. Starting in verse 8. I have baptized you with water. This is John the Baptist speaking. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. 
we can easily overlook these verses and their importance. We can say that Jesus was baptized just to show us an example of giving yourself to the call of God, but I would suggest that that isn't the point of this text. See, it is a proclamation of who Jesus claimed to be, the Son of God. And this is a major theme in Mark, and it is an essential doctrine that we need to know. Now, when someone pr proclaims something big, generally, we don't just take that person at their word. Like, if I stood up here and said, hey, I am Jesus the Messiah, you'd all be like, no, you're not. <laughs> you're not. <laughs> Get off the stage. Um, but really, we, we look for evidence. We look for testimony that backs their proclamation. So in these verses we read, and from last week's teaching that Tyler did, we have been given our first point, the testimony of Jesus, the anointed king. The testimony of Jesus, the anointed king. So look at verse 7, just a verse before. Uh, and it said, And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. So here we see John the Baptist um, point to his belief that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah. And as Tyler shared last week, we see that John proclaims that Jesus is the stronger one, the one with such great and divine authority, to the point that John isn't even worthy of performing what was a culturally disgraceful act of removing the sandals of their master, of Jesus. Something that <clears throat> a typical master of a slave would never allow his servant to perform. Yet John gives this metaphor to stress that he is nothing in comparison to Jesus, who is the anointed king. So then as we read the following verses, John baptized Jesus. And we can debate the purpose of why Jesus was baptized. You know, some may say it was to give, give us a good example to follow. But I disagree with this view because John's baptism was to call sinners to repentance. And Jesus was not in need of repenting because he had not sinned. See, John's part in this was not to make Jesus clean spiritually or physically. It was to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, the anointed King. And so as we go through Mark, we're going to see this truth about Jesus challenged by different groups. And one of those specific uh, oppositions that was given was by the chief priests, uh, the scribes and the elders. And it relates back to John the Baptist. We actually read it earlier. So turn with me to uh, Mark 11. So here in Mark 11, verse 27, and we'll read through verse 33. And they came again to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. 
And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they had all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Clever. <laughs> See, I love how Jesus just makes people face the truth, right? He makes them face the truth. The, the priests and scribes here couldn't acknowledge that John the Baptist was a prophet, but they couldn't deny the truth for fear of the people who had believed he was a prophet. So now these verses also reveal that John the Baptist was proclaiming that Jesus was the Messiah and that he had come. He was there among them, yet the priests and scribes couldn't acknowledge that because they then would have to acknowledge that Jesus' authority really came from Yahweh. They'd have to believe that he actually was the Messiah because of what John the Baptist was preaching. And thus, John the Baptist's prophetic proclamations give testimony to the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed king. And there are now also further to this testimony, <clears throat> not just from John the Baptist, um, but there's other things that give testimony to what the baptism of Jesus means. And next we see the Spirit of God anoints Jesus as king. The Spirit of God anoints Jesus as king. So back in verse 10, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. The scene caught my attention, not just because it's really cool, but it caught my attention because there are similarities between the baptism of Jesus here and how David was anointed king of Israel. So let's turn to First uh, Samuel. So there in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we're going to start in verse 1 and go through 13. While you're turning there, let me just give you some context of the story. So Saul was the first anointed king of Israel. He was, he was crowned, but he eventually disobeyed the Lord multiple times. And he had his three strikes against them uh, to the point that the Lord told Saul he no longer was going to be king. And he would raise up another to be king. And so this is where we pick up in, in Samuel. Uh, and this is where Samuel, who's the prophet at the time, was told by the Lord to go anoint the next king of Israel, which is David. And so here we pick up verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being keen over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall appoint for me him who, whom I declare to you. And Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. 
And the elders of the city came to meet with him trembling and say, do you come peaceably? And he said, peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And when they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on uh, the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord does, sees, not man, sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for, what, for uh, we will not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Do you guys see any similarities there between Jesus and David? See, what I see is both are chosen. Both anointed by God through a prophet. So both also received the spirit of God and both were anointed king. See, David was over Israel and Jesus over the kingdom of God. It's also interesting that both were anointed as kings, but they didn't actually receive their crown right then and there. See, it would be years before David actually took the crown as he trusted the Lord to fully remove Saul from the throne. And Jesus would be executed on the cross and mocked with a crown of thorns. But after his resurrection, he then ascended to heaven and was put on the throne, crowned, so to speak. So they both had a mission to execute and glorify God in. So that their crowning, their eventual crowning, would only further magnify the greatness of God. Now, there's also a couple differences I want to point out. See, David received the Holy Spirit, but he didn't actually have power over the Spirit of God. Now, what John the Baptist claimed is that Jesus has the power to give the Spirit of God. And we see this also promised by Jesus throughout the Gospels, how he would send the Helper, the Holy Spirit, to his disciples because Jesus and the Spirit are both part of the triune God. They're both working together in unity to accomplish the will of God. The other major difference is that David was just a man, but Jesus was fully God, who also was fully human. And we see Jesus in his humanity as he, we later will read, he wept, he rejoiced, he grieved, he bled. 
And then from his humanity, we also behold this great humility he has because we also know he had the authority and power that could only belong to God. Now, there, there is also a strong connection between David and Jesus, not just because they're related by blood lineage, but because of God's promise to raise up a king. One example of this promise is in Jeremiah 23, verse 5. It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. See, Jesus is that righteous branch, this promised king. And the Gospel of Mark is proclaiming this truth, if we will hear it. See, there are many prophetic uh, references that we could visit to support this claim. Um, I'm going to turn us to one more. There in Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth." And the coastlands wait for his law. See, in Mark, we, we see the beginning of these verses fulfilled in Isaiah. The Spirit was put on this chosen servant who is Jesus. And by the end of Mark, we also see these verses fulfilled primarily in his death and resurrection of Jesus. And we also see that the Lord delights in his chosen servant. And this connects well with the baptism of Jesus as God the Father declares to Jesus, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And that's another part of this testimony is God the Father himself gives witness that Jesus is the son of God. And what this reveals to us is that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are unified. They're unified and having Jesus be the Messiah, the anointed king. And the father is pleased by Jesus because he is his son. Not just because he's going to do all these amazing things. He's pleased in his son because he's his son. And Jesus, being the son, is going to undertake this great work that will glorify his father. And so Jesus has the full backing of the father. He has the full backing of the Spirit that give testimony that he is truly the Son of God, that he is the anointed king. Now, this declaration of Jesus, <clears throat> uh, being the uh, anointed king, and this unity between the Father and the Son reminds me of Psalm 2. Let's turn there now and read it. Psalm 2. It says, Why do the nations rage 
and the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against the anoint, his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king of Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your, your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So we see similar language in the Gospel of Mark and how the Lord refers to his son here in Psalm 2. Now the psalm is unique in how it is almost more of a prophetic writing than it is poetic. And we see this, this promised anointed king who is the son of God. And this king is coming to conquer when we, what we take from this psalm. And it brings a message to take refuge in this anointed king, to be on his side, to be submitted to him instead of these other kingdoms, these other nations that are in rebellion against the Lord. And with the story of Jesus, we gain insight in how this plays out. So I want us to now look at the mission of Jesus, the anointed king. The mission of Jesus, the anointed king. See, with the baptism of Jesus, we see the anointed king, the Messiah, is presented to us. And he is the one that we are to behold. So let's now take a glimpse into what, what are we beholding. In Mark one, this few verses after our text today, verses 14 and 15, we see Jesus proclaim the kingdom of God. So now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. As Hans introduced Mark to us, he referenced this verse and showed us that we're not mentioned anywhere in here. You see, Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God. That's the good news. That's the good news. The, the anointed one is here. Because here's the thing is, Jesus didn't come to bring us to heaven so that we can do whatever we want. He came to make his kingdom known. He came to tell us that he is the anointed king and that his kingdom is good news for the world that has been tormented by so many kingdoms that are under the kingdom of darkness. And it is a call for us to repent and submit ourselves not to good morals, not to being more spiritual, but to submit 
to God, the anointed king. And so Jesus is enacting his plan to bring restoration to a broken world. And we can only see this restoration in his kingdom. No other kingdom, only his kingdom. See, there is no other king or kingdom that can accomplish what Jesus the Christ will. And we know where Mark will eventually come to that as he was proclaimed this anointed king, he would eventually die, but then he would also resurrect. And we know from other scriptures that he died to take away our sin, to, to bring uh, a blood off, uh, a sacrifice, to shed his blood for our debt of sin. And then he rose from the grave and defeated sin and death. And he, could, he, he was the only one that could accomplish what we can never do. And that's only part of the good news. Because he also calls us to repent and follow him, follow him as our king, to walk in sanctification while we await his return. And upon his promised return, we will see the kingdom of God be fully revealed and he will also bring judgment on all those that remain in the darkness of their sin, that continue to be in rebellion against this anointed king. And that will be a day for us to greatly rejoice because we will see how he has freed the captives from the kingdom of darkness to bring them into the kingdom of God, a kingdom that cannot be overcome. See, Jesus is the one, he's proclaiming this message of good news. He's been prophesied for centuries that he is coming, that he has this mission to accomplish. And uh, one of those prophecies was in, in Isaiah 61, this verse one. It says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. See, we have truly been blessed, not because we're in the United States, but we have been blessed with the opportunity to be freed by this anointed king. I love how Colossians 1 puts it, verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in the manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing, him, pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So we have been transferred from this domain of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved Son. And we have been given so much that we don't deserve 
any of this from this anointed king. Think about it. Any other king that had the power to do anything they wanted, they would just destroy anything that resembled their enemy, right? They had an enemy and they had the power to take them out, they would take them out. But Jesus, instead, sacrifices himself for his enemy in order to transform his enemy into his disciples, into his subjects, into his friends, into his family. This is what we call contra-conditional love. See, it would never have happened but praise be to God that Jesus is the anointed king and not, not any of us were. This is why we have, we have been called to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Have you thought about what it is to be worthy of the Lord? What it is to walk in a way that gives him worth? So here's where I'm going to actually look at the example of Jesus at his baptism. Because what, another thing I see at this event is this unity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. See, Jesus walked in a way worthy of God the Father and the Spirit. Because the Father gave the support of the Son and the Spirit would be with Jesus and would submit to Jesus sending the Spirit as a helper to his church. See, God had a plan from the beginning that would spark unity within his kingdom. Now, Paul also gives us good insight into this unity that we are to have, that gives worth to the Lord. Let's turn to Ephesians 4. We're there a couple years ago. For those that can remember that far back. <clears throat> So Ephesians 4, we're reading verses 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in the manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one, the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You know, I find that bearing with one another is very applicable. See, we're all broken sinners. It's not easy to get along with, right? And really, without the Lord, or without the, the love that the Lord has called us to, we'd all just be against each other, unless we are similar enough to each other to be somewhat friends. This is to, this is to walk worthy of the Lord, to bear with one another in that sacrificial love that he has shown to us. And also to walk worthy of the Lord is to be eager, eager 
to maintain unity. Now, there's a lot of things that we can have different opinions and convictions on that won't bring disunity. Yet the question that we need to ask is, is that personal conviction something you believe is worth dividing over with your brother or sister in Christ? And maybe the better question is, is it something that Christ told you to divide over? Because there are things that we should divide over, even die for. Like if you came up to me and said, I'm a Christian, but I don't think Jesus is the son of God, we have a problem. We have a problem. We are not in unity. So to be in unity, there are certain things that Jesus tells us that we need to be unified on. There's other things that really, they don't matter if we think the same on. It doesn't matter what your favorite football team is. It's okay. <laughs> you can have a different favorite football team. I give you that permission. Now, there are other things that we just need to work to for the sake of unity. You know, there's going to be some things that we're in that gray area, right? But for the sake of unity, we need to recognize what, what is actually going to bring us towards unity under Christ. So my hope for you and me, brothers and sisters, is that we do the hard work of maintaining unity that we do it because we want to be unified with our Lord and with each other. Because that is walking worthy of our anointed king, our Lord. Now Paul emphasizes this unity with verse 6, there from Ephesians, that there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And since we have been on the subject of baptism, I just want to say that Jesus proclaimed that he is the Lord by his baptism. That's what he did with his baptism. Our baptism, we proclaim Jesus is our Lord. That's what our baptism does. And by the Spirit, we are claimed as our Lord's. See that connection there? Jesus proclaimed he is the Lord. He received the Spirit. He has been announced. And our baptism is to announce that we think he is the Lord. And then the Spirit coming into our lives is Jesus saying, yes, you are mine. And I say this just so we don't get confused about the idea that we have to have multiple baptisms or that has to be by the water or by the spirit or that we have to speak a certain tongues. It, it's, that's the simple truth of it is we proclaim that we're the Lord's and the Lord claims us by his spirit. It is one baptism that proclaims Jesus is our Lord. It is one spirit that claims we are our Lord's. Now Jesus has proclaimed to us that he is the Messiah, he is the anointed king and this proclamation has been made to the world so, this brings us to why we're here today. That we are to have a response to the anointed king. And that's our final point. We are to have a response to the anointed king. 
So what are the implications of our belief that Jesus is the Son of God, the anointed King? If he truly is who he claims to be, then my, my response is either I'm going to believe him and be for him, or I'm going to say that's a lie and be against him. Now, if for him, my response is going to have to be a submission to his authority. To submit to his authority means I need to know his commands, his law, if you will. See, a king, a king has a kingdom, and the kingdom has subjects who submit to the law of the kingdom. And Jesus has presented us with the word, which speaks to this law of his kingdom. Let's read the simplified version, the, the, the cliff notes, if you will, that Jesus gives in Mark 12 of what this law of his kingdom is. So Mark 12 Verses 28 to 34, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, this should be familiar to you from Deuteronomy, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no one besides him. And to love him with all your heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So the commands and law of the kingdom of God are built on love for God. Love for your neighbor. It is such a simple concept. Yet, because we have distorted love by our sin, it's difficult. See, we have to be willing to see love through the lens of Christ. To recognize that our past view of love, our historical view of it, has distortions because Honestly, we've all gone through some different traumatic experiences on various levels. We all have experienced and given broken love. And maybe a lot of times it wasn't really even love at all, but more selfish. So brothers and sisters, this is part of sanctification, to work toward loving as Christ loves. That's part of sanctification, to work toward loving as Christ loves. Because that's part of his kingdom. His law is love. So when we all function more like Christ, under his law of love, 
You know, there's going to be things like we, we find that our relationships will be deeper. Our priorities will be more aligned with the Lord. Our lives will be sacrificial. And we will love God and each other in the midst of the joys and sorrows found in this world. But I also need to burst your bubble. That it's not going to always be rosy. It's not always going to be better feeling to walk this way. But what I am going to say is it is better. Not because it's easier and you get all your genie wishes. Because you're going to have to lose your life in order to gain life in Christ. You will have to lose your life in order to gain life in Christ. So remember, Jesus is your king. This is how his kingdom functions. And so I want us to ask ourselves this week, is my love for God and others done for selfish gain or sacrificially for Christ? Is my love for God and others done for selfish gain or sacrificially for Christ? I ask this because it brings up another question. I know I got lots of questions today. And this other question is, is Christ the highest authority worthy of your life? Because if he is, then that other question becomes a lot easier to answer. So is Christ the highest authority worthy of your life? There's a couple of verses later in Mark, chapter, chapter 15, verses 38 through 39. It says this, And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood, stood facing him, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Something interesting about this is the word torn there is used in our verse earlier in Mark at his baptism, and it's also used here. The first torn was used to announce the anointed king is here. And so we are, as we're beginning Mark, prepared to look at this mission of, of this Messiah. And the second torn was at the cross, which announced the work of Christ is accomplished and we see the centurion see that. He sees Jesus as the Son of God. But we know even more context to the story because in fa the fact is that Jesus also rose from the dead, that he also conquered sin and death. So truly, Jesus is the highest authority that we should submit to because Jesus Christ is worthy. And one who understands that Christ is worthy is, is Paul. I mean, he, you, you look at his life. He knew Christ was worthy. So we're going to read that verse that Dallas read earlier in Romans 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, 
which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So Paul gave his life to Christ by serving as an apostle. And for a lot of us, we, we lift that apostleship title up, right? Paul was amazing, no doubt. But Paul recognized that Christ was the highest authority. He proclaimed Christ in much of the Roman Empire to his own detriment. As he was imprisoned, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked, he was whipped, he was hated. But we also get a little glimpse into Paul's heart and mind even surrounding this. There in Philippians 3, verse 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now, I don't say this to be meant as a guilt trip, but I'm doing this to show the level of worth that Jesus deserves. So he has given you and me new life. He has given us a new identity in his kingdom. And we are called to Christ, as Paul continued in Romans there, verses five and six, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. See, we belong to Christ, the anointed king. And we also need to remember that he has transferred you and me out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God. See, we were captives, slaves even, to our sin. But in him, we have found freedom. We have new purpose, a new identity. We are sons and daughters of the most high God. We belong to the kingdom of the anointed king, Jesus. So therefore, we are called to live out this obedience of faith in Christ. Because we have been also given worth in this kingdom, this kingdom of God. Because Jesus, the anointed king, is the one that's truly worthy. So I have one final verse to share from there in Philippians chapter one. Verses 27 to 30, it says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you 
that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I, have, that I still have. So in our closing here, I want you just to remember how John the Baptist prepared the way for Christ. How Jesus, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit, and John the Baptist all said that Jesus is the Messiah, the anointed king. And I want us to remember the scriptures of how the disciples of Jesus, such as Peter and Paul, bore witness of the worth of Christ. And I have more questions for us to ask. So I want us to remember to ask ourselves this week, is my love for God and others done for selfish gain or sacrificially for Christ? Is Christ the highest authority worthy of your life? The next one, will you walk in the law of love that the anointed king has declared? And finally, will you stand firm in unity with each other to proclaim the gospel? Give you a little time to write those down. I hope at this point you've got the theme that Jesus is worthy. That he's, by his baptism, proclaiming to be this anointed king that is ushered in this kingdom of God that is built on this law of love. And that he has taken us who are his enemies to become part of his kingdom. Nothing we deserve. He did this because he is good. So let's go forth from this place and proclaim what we know to be true about Jesus the Christ, Jesus the anointed king, that he truly is worthy. Let's pray.